Last Sunday we started a new summer series called Days of Elijah. I believe, and perhaps you do too, that we're living in days much like the days of Elijah. The culture that we live in is embracing seemingly anything and everything except God. And I told you last week that God always sends a prophet before He sends judgment. Elijah was a prophetic voice. Elijah was speaking on behalf of God to God's people who were being misled by an evil king named King Ahab. James chapter 5 verse 17, I told you last week, simply says this, Elijah was a man just like us. That's where we left off last Sunday. Elijah was a man just like us. This man who had an extraordinary relationship with God was as ordinary as any of us. Now, the very first time that we see Elijah mentioned in Scripture, it is a very dramatic scene, at least for one verse. 1 Kings chapter 17 is the text. We're putting it on the screen for you, but I would really like you to find it in your Bible because we're going to walk through lots of Scriptures together today. 1 Kings chapter 17, find that in your Bible, and then we're going to look at this very dramatic scene that is one verse long. And here's what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now I told you this last week, but I want to make sure you understand this. This is the very first time we see Elijah. We don't have any background information on him. We don't know very much about him at all. We know... Nothing about his call of God to be a prophet. We don't know anything about his growth, the years that he was growing up. We don't know anything about what shaped him. All we know is when we're reading through 1 Kings and we come to chapter 17, suddenly a man named Elijah appears on the stage of biblical history. Now, when you study the lives of individuals in the Bible, you also need to study history. You can't separate the people from the context of the time. If you really want to understand the people of the Bible, you need to understand the history of the Bible. It's vital to understand the difficult times that Elijah was living in when he stepped onto the biblical scene. So I need to start today with a little bit of a, of a history lesson. I'm going to ask you, please don't tune me out. Uh, this is really going to help some of you understand the Old Testament. And so please just tune in and, and follow along as best that you can. For well over a hundred years, the Israelites, God's people, lived under the reign of three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon. For well over a hundred years, those were the three kings, all of them chosen by God to be the king and the leader of God's people. Now, these men were famous rulers for the Jews. Although there was not one of them that was without flaw. There was not one of them that was without sin or failure. They all had their flaws. They all had their skeletons in the closet. And yet they all had their good qualities as well. In fact, they were such good men that they were chosen by God to be His representative, to be His leader of His people, to be the King of Israel. Now, at the end of Solomon's life, the kingdom divided. At the end of Solomon's life, there was a civil war in the Jewish nation. 
Much like there was a civil war in our country, and it was the north and the south, in, in much the same way, in the days of Solomon, after he died, there was a civil war that broke out, and it was really a battle between the northern parts of the kingdom and the southern parts of the kingdom. And so what you have here is a divided kingdom after Solomon. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. So the nation of, what we would call the nation of Israel split during the civil war. And there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah. Now, this is very important because when you're reading through 1 Kings and Chronicles and those kind of things, you'll see that there was this king that was king serving in Judah and this king was serving in Israel. And if you would understand the divided kingdom, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. It's like I thought Judah and Israel are the same thing. After Solomon, there was a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, it's important for you also to understand for the next 200 years, Israel had, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings, and listen to this, and all of them were wicked. Remember, the first three kings were chosen by God. They were good men, though they had their flaws. But after Solomon, after the kingdom divided... The northern kingdom, Israel, for over 200 years had 19 kings and all of them, all of them were wicked. In fact, the Bible describes every one of them in this way. They did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That was the description of their reign as king of the northern kingdoms. I, I want to look at an example of the very first king of this new northern kingdom. You're in First Kings, go over to chapter 13. We're not going to look at nearly at all of these 19 kings, but I want to show you the first one of this divided kingdom. The man who was the first king of the northern kingdom, if you will. First Kings chapter 13. His name is Jeroboam. And, and I wish we had time to read a lot about him, but uh, let's start in verse 31. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Now the shrines that it, that's referring there... We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but it's referring to pagan shrines. Here is the king of God's people, the king of the northern kingdom, and he's building pagan shrines, leading God's people into idolatry. Skip down to verse thirteen or verse thirty-three. First Kings thirteen, verse thirty-three. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar making offerings. What you find here, if we have the time to read the whole context, what you find here is that the very first king of the northern kingdom, after the kingdom divided, the very first king was a man named Jeroboam who was a very wicked man who went to the high places, the Bible says, and the high places refer to pagan altars used to worship pagan gods and pagan idols. And he deliberately, here's what you need to understand, he deliberately led God's people into idolatry. He was not leading them to worship God, Yahweh God. He was, Jeroboam deliberately was leading God's people into idolatry. Now there were other kings after Jeroboam and every one of them were evil, godless men who often participated in deception, immorality, idolatry, and murder. Here's what you need to understand. Listen to this. For six dark decades, Israel's kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. It is almost like every king was worse than the last one. 
For six dark decades, Israel's kings did not point their people to God. Israel's kings pointed their people to idols. Then there was a king named Ahab who took the throne. Go over to chapter 16. Again, I'm fast-forwarding through 19 kings here. Understand that. We're just kind of fast-forwarding, getting uh, the highlights here if we can. 1 Kings chapter 16, we looked at the first king of the northern kingdom. Now let's look at Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Now remember, Asa is the king of Judah. That's which kingdom? Southern kingdom. Exactly right. So Asa is the king of Judah. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, or the northern kingdom. And he reigned in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. The the northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. So he reigned in Samaria over Israel, over the northern kingdom, for 22 years. Now keep reading with me, follow closely. Ahab, son of Omri, watch this, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now that's saying quite a lot. If you had a, a succession of 19 kings and every one of them were evil, every one of them were godless, every one of them were immoral, every one of them were murderers and adulterers, if every one of those kings were that way, and then the Bible says, and Ahab, when he became king, did worse, he was more immoral, he, he, he just was, did more evil than any other kings before him. Keep reading with me, verse 31. Watch this. Remember Jeroboam? Watch 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Watch this. Jeroboam was the one who introduced idolatry, just various kinds of idolatry to the people of God. Now we have Ahab, more wicked than any of all the other kings perhaps put together. And here's what he does. He actually begins to introduce to God's people the concept of worshiping Baal. Now why does the writer pause in the story to tell us about Jezebel? In fact, if you were to take the time to read through 1 Kings and it tells us about all the different kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, there's no other place where it talks about his wife. There's no other place where it pauses and say, oh, and he married so-and-so. So why does God have the writer pause here to tell us about Jezebel? Listen carefully. Here's why. Because the devil used her to introduce Baal worship to the people of God. She and her father were worshipers of Baal, and when she married Ahab, she brought that religion with her into the northern kingdom. And the devil used Jezebel to introduce Baal worship to the people of God. Now, Baal worship had existed for many years, perhaps centuries, but it was not part of the, the land of Israel. Outside the land of Israel, it was, they, they did that, but it was not really part of the land of Israel. The actual worship of Baal did not find its way into the hearts of the Israelites until it was introduced by the marriage of Ahab to, to Jezebel. Other sad words in verse 31. Look with me. 
he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that, that is, sins of idolatry, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve, watch this, the king of Israel began to serve Baal and worship him. I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to worship an idol, you need a place to put that idol, right? If you're going to worship an idol, you need a place to gather the people. And so just like Solomon built a temple for the Lord, Ahab built a temple for Baal in Samaria. Just like Jerusalem was the, the place of worship for the Lord in the temple, Samaria became the place of the temple of Baal. There in the heart of the Holy Land. It's right there in the text. Look at verse 32. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Now, I know I'm giving you a history lesson, but all this is going to come together if you'll follow closely with me. I need to show you how bad Baal worship was. You need to understand how awful it was to introduce Baal worship to the people of God in the holy land of God. Would you put your finger there in 1 Kings? Would you go over and you find the book of Numbers? Over to the left, would you find Numbers chapter 25? Numbers chapter 25. Now this is early, early in the history of the nation of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. They're on the outskirts of the promised land. In fact, they're across the Jordan River just outside Jericho. And I want you just to look what's happening in Baal worship just outside the promised land on the other side of Jericho. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began, this is Numbers 25 verse 1, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Sexual immorality was part of Baal worship. But not only that, later... Baal worship became even more wicked and evil. And after it was, took root in the northern kingdom like a cancer, it began to spread down into the southern kingdom. Let me show you this. Jeremiah, go over to Jeremiah, over to the right. The prophet Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Here's what God says through Jeremiah. For they have forsaken me, talking about his people, his own people, for they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have, watch this, they have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew, and they have filled the place with the blood of the innocent. Verse 5, they have built the high places of Baal, to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal. You need to understand something. When Ahab introduced Baal worship to the people of God, it was a demonic thing he was introducing. It was not a minor thing. This was a demonic thing that he was introducing to the people of God. And let me tell you who Baal was. 
Baal was a little G God, not a real God, of course, but a little G God. Baal was believed to be the fertility God of the land. They believed that he gave fertility to the womb and life-giving rain to the soil. If you wanted to have a big family, you worship Baal. He was the fertility God. If you wanted your crops to grow, you worship Baal. He was the fertility God. He was the one who sent the rain and made the crops grow. They believed. Now, it's, there's something astounding about the rain if you think about it. If you ever go outside, and, and I did this recently, if you ever go outside and just watch it rain, there's something astounding about that because the rain literally falls from heaven. And the pagan people in that day, and even God's people who had been misled in that day, they began to look up at the clouds, and they look up at the sky, and they recognized that this stuff that falls from the heavens, this rain that we so desperately need, it has to be given by a God. It literally falls from the heavens. And they, some of them unknowingly, called the God who sent the rain, Baal. Baal was the one who provided the rain, they thought. They thought Bell was the one who provided the rain and controlled the weather. Now, remember King Ahab built a temple where? Somebody tell me, where did he build the temple to Baal? Samaria. And when he built the temple in Samaria to Baal, the people of God began to go to that temple to worship that idol. You know why? Because they became convinced by the culture around them that Baal was the one providing the rain that they needed and everybody needs rain. Everybody needs their crops to grow. So they began to go to, to Samaria and worship Baal there. This is where Elijah comes into the story. Thank you for staying with me through the history lesson. This is where Elijah comes in the story. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. The first time Elijah steps on the stage of biblical history. Chapter 17 verse 1. Here's what we read. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. That's all we know about him. He lived in Tishbe and Gilead. It was such a small insignificant town that we don't even know where it was. Let me show you on a map approximately where it was. And, and I apologize, you, you can't see this, I'm sure, in detail. But at least you'll get an idea. Here's the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. You may be able to see from where you are. And those watching online, I hope that you can see this. But this area is the northern kingdom called Israel. This area is the southern kingdom called Judah. Here is Samaria. This whole area was called Samaria, but there was a city called Samaria. Here's Samaria in the northern kingdom of, that was called Israel. It's believed that Tishbe was across the Jordan River right around here. This is Gilead. So it says that he, he lived in Tishbe in Gilead. So we know it was in this area. It was believed that Tishbe was probably right around here across the Jordan River from Samaria. Here's what you need to understand. Elijah was a nobody who lived in a small town that we can't even find. But this nobody was a worshiper of the one true God. And apparently it really bothered him that Baal was being worshipped in Samaria at the temple of Baal. 
And he was being worshipped as the fertility God. And it apparently bothered him that God's people were being misled that way. I don't know, this is my imagination, but maybe he was outside one day looking at the clouds and, and said, God doesn't control the, the weather. I mean, Baal doesn't control the weather. God does. Maybe he was watching the clouds move by and perhaps he thought, Baal doesn't send the rain. Only God. Only God sends the rain. What do you do when the most powerful man in the nation of Israel is leading God's people into idolatry? Well, here's what, what some people would do. If it's in today's time, they'd get on social media and rant about it. They'd get on social media and talk about how bad the society is, how bad the world is. They'd get on social media and think they've done their part. That's not what Elijah did. Elijah did something far different and far better. You see, if you, if you are a nobody living in a small town like Tishbe, then here's what you do. You talk to the God who does control the weather. Remember James 5.17? The Bible says Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. You know why he prayed earnestly that it would not rain? Perhaps one day he was outside and he thinking, Bell doesn't control the rain. God does. And it occurred to him. The only way we're going to convince God's people that Baal is a false idol, a false god, is for the one who controls the rain, make it stop raining. And so that's what he started praying about. He started praying, God... James chapter 5, verse 17, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. He began, that began to be his prayer. Now, I, I want you to, if you haven't turned to James 5, 17, I want you to turn there because I want you to see a few things in that verse. I want you to notice three things that James tells us about Elijah and his prayer life. First of all, I want you to notice, and we talked about this last week, but I just want to highlight it again. I want you to notice he was no different from you. The Bible says he was a man just like us. There in James 5.17, Elijah was a man just like us. He was no different from you. But I want you to notice how he prayed. The Bible says he prayed what? Earnestly. It doesn't just say that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. The Bible says in James 5.17 that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. I want you to notice what he prayed for. He prayed that it would not rain so that the people would recognize who really is in control of the rain. Now, how long did he pray? The Bible doesn't tell us that. But I think I have the answer. I think he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed until he had the confidence to leave his small town as a nobody and go speak eyeball, eyeball to eyeball with the most wicked king Israel had ever had. That's how long he prayed. He prayed until he had the courage and the confidence to leave his little podunk town and go across the Jordan River and go into Samaria and stand in front of the most wicked king Israel had ever had. He prayed until he had the courage to stand before Ahab and look at him eyeball to eyeball and tell him, God's not going to 
let it rain until I say so. I want you to think how scary that must have been to go stand in front of the most powerful man in Israel and look him in the eye. When you're a nobody in the Poduck town, Tishbe. I think I know a little bit of that kind of panic. About two weeks ago, Jonathan and I went to Florida to swim with sharks. When we weren't here, that's why. When we went on vacation, I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's always been on his bucket list to go swim with sharks. Why? I don't know, but that's just always been on his bucket list. So we went to Jupiter, Florida, and there's my son, and there's an eight-foot shark swimming right around him. Let me show you another picture. Here's what they did. Go to the next picture. There's a good picture of the shark. That's me, and that's my son, and that shark is heading right towards Jonathan. Here's what they did. Now, this is not tame shark. This is not Disney sharks. All right? This is not sharks in a confined area. This is sharks out in the middle of the ocean. They cut up fish, put it in a basket, threw it into the water. They took a bucket of, of, a bucket of blood, poured it into the water, and all of a sudden, the sharks started showing up. And then they said, okay, jump in. And we did. And so here's one of those sharks, about eight feet long. This is my son right here. This is me watching the shark about to come eat my son. He's swimming right at him. And just, just so that you understand that, that I was there, there's one other picture I'll show you. This is me. Now, this is another shark. It was a, probably six-footer, and he was down lower. But I was actually looking at a different shark that was heading my way. And the reason you know that's me is because I got my Pepsi hat on. I figure if I'm going to die, I'm going to die representing Pepsi, you know. So I'm, st- I'm floating on the water, and here comes a seven or eight foot shark right at me. I-, I forgot to tell you that before we got in the water, the captain of the boat said, here's the number one rule before you get in the water with the sharks. Here's the number one rule. Number one rule is this. Never look away when a shark comes at you. Always Maintain eye contact when a shark is coming towards you. Always, he said sharks are predatory creatures. And if you look away from a shark, he sees you as shark bait. He sees you as, as somebody he can grab. But if you maintain eye contact with him, you might make it. That's not what he said. But he did say always maintain eye, eye contact. Always. Never look away from a shark. So I had a big shark. Can you go back? So I had a big shark like this one. Just like this shark's coming toward Jonathan. He later turned around and he came towards me. And he's coming right at me. I am looking eyeball to eyeball with the shark. And all I could think of was this. Look him in the eye. Look him in the eye. Look him in the eye. And he eventually when he got right near me, he went down and swam right under my stomach. Now that had to be kind of what Elijah felt as he walked from his podunk town. And he faced the most wicked, powerful man in Israel. He had to be thinking, look him in the eye. Look him in the eye. Look him in the eye. And he stood there with God-given courage. And with that God-given courage, Elijah said these words to the king who had misled God's people, to the king of Israel who had led God's people into idolatry. He stood there with a God-given courage. And this is what he said. As the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, God, as the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice all these commas. As if he's slowly walking through this. 
as the Lord, the God of Israel. The God of Israel. He's the God of Israel, not Baal. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Baal is not a living God. He's an idol. But the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Then he says, whom I serve. That's why I'm here today. That's why I'm standing and looking at you. Because the Lord, Jehovah God, the God who really is the God of Israel, not Baal, who lives, whom I serve. Here's what that God sent me to tell you. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In other words, here's what, watch this, everybody look, look at me. Oh, those watching online, I want you to see this. Here's what he was saying to them. He was saying, God has sent me here to show you and all the people that you have deceived that Baal is a false god. And the way I'm going to show you, the way God's going to show you that Baal is a false god, there will not be any rain. You think he's the fertility God? You think he's the one that sends rain? I'm here to declare to you, there will not be any rain for years to come. And sure, as he said it, when he walked away, the drought began. Now this drought had, two, had a twofold purpose. First of all, it was divine judgment. God was judging the nation of Israel who had turned to idolatry. It was divine judgment. But secondly, it was a demonstration that Baal was powerless. It was a demonstration, a several year demonstration that Baal had no power, that Baal was a lie. Now here's how that intersects with your life and mine before we close. How do you and I deal with evil in our culture when you're a nobody and I'm a nobody and we live in a small town? How do you deal with the evil in our culture when it's like, Man, somebody needs to do something. It, it, this, this, this nation has gone crazy. This thing's happening that I, I can't even explain. I, how do you deal with the evil that's happening in our country when you're a nobody living in a small town? What do you do when the people who once served God are now bowing down to something else? People who once served God are walking away from the faith. What do you do? How do you stand alone in a world that has grown dark and demonic. How do you stand for God when it feels like sometimes you're standing alone? James 5.17 gives us the answer. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Elijah was a man just like us. And here's how he dealt with the culture. He was a nobody from a small town nobody ever heard of. We can't even find this town on the map anymore. But here's the way he made a difference in the culture in which he was living. Elijah prayed earnestly. See, here's the lesson. Here's my one point if you're taking notes. Praying earnestly to God can do more than anything else you can do. Can you think of anything else he could have done to change bell worship? 
Can you think of anything else he could have done living in Tishbe on the other side of the Jordan and nobody even knew who he was? Can you think of anything else he could have done that would have made, made a difference? You see, there is nothing happening in our world today that God can't handle. There is nothing happening in our world today that God can't handle. So when your heart is breaking for the corruption and evil that you see in our nation, pray earnestly to the one who can do something about it. Don't just pray. Pray earnestly. When you see people turning away from God, pray earnestly to the God they are rejecting. When you feel like you can't do anything to make a difference, pray earnestly to the one who can. Elijah was a man just like us. And he made a difference in his world. Not because of how powerful he was, but because he decided to pray earnestly to the one who can make a difference. I have to confess to you, I've been convicted that I pray. Not very often I pray earnestly. I pray. It's not very often I'm so burdened, so gripped, that I pray earnestly. But God can do more than anything else I can do. And all God's people said, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to come back to chapter 17 and we're going to start with verse 2 because as soon as Elijah said those words to Ahab, God sent him somewhere else. And we'll talk about that next week. God was preparing him for what was ahead.